Blog Talk Radio. show tonight. It's our annual tribute of our inductee to the Hall of Fame. Uh, our Hall of Fame tribute tonight comes from the pages of the retired Eastern Pilots Association official magazine, Repartee. Many contributed to the story about this remarkable man we are honoring tonight, and you can find the entire story on the REPA website www.repaonline.com and then there you will see repartee uh, in the menu just tap repartee and you'll see some wonderful issues uh, as a matter of fact all of the issues of the repartee magazine over the years this particular honor is in the spring of 1989 and it's called the John H. Halliburton Memorial Issue. And now I'll ask Dorothy if she'll start the program tonight. Dorothy? Yes, thank you. In the spring 1989, the issue of Repartee, the editor, Captain Jean Ramsey, wrote the following comments about the man we honor in tonight's induction into the Eastern Airlines Radio Show's Hall of Fame. Class of 2020. Those were his closest friends and associates after he became an executive of Eastern Airlines. Remember him saying he felt a little uncomfortable with everyone calling him Captain John. His reason was that when he flew the line, he was called the pilot in command and was in the executive offices when the title was changed to captain. But in all his 40-plus years with Eastern Airlines, he was affectionately called Captain John because he was a man of such tremendous stature in so many ways. 
He was born a leader with unlimited capacity to accomplish things for his fellow man. He was president of the Greater Miami Chamber of Commerce. He was campaign chairman of the United Way of Dade County. He was president of the Greater Miami Coalition. He served on boards for the Dade County Chapter of the American Red Cross, the Zoological Society, the Museum of Science, and the University of Miami Business Advisory Board. In addition to all of this, he served on other community and business organizations. His contributions, in fact, were so great to the Miami community, which was his home, that when he retired in 1979, he was honored by more than 300 business and civic leaders. His community service was so greatly appreciated that David Kennedy, the Miami mayor at the time, proclaimed his retirement that John H. Halberton Day he was a member of the Rotary Club of Miami Springs and a longtime member of the United Methodist Church of Coral Gables. Later, and in retirement in Caraville, Texas, he continued his devotion to the United Methodist Church. He was a Mason there. All the above was, in addition to being an inspired leader and executive at Eastern Airlines, where he was loved and admired by the thousands of employees who served under his guidance. There may have been those who had differences with him, but everyone respected and admired his fairness and capacity as a leader and executive. His rise from a young Tennessee farm boy to vice president operations of the giant airline that was Eastern Airlines would conjure up the tremendous admiration of any Horatio Alger fan. And in all this, John Halliburton was always the perfect gentleman. He was even-tempered. He had total control of his personal emotions with complete self-discipline. He could be stern if his duties called for it, but always cool, calm, and with kindness. Captain Tom Barkley speaks succinctly about these qualities when he writes, My admiration for John Halliburton began before I ever met him. I was a new co-pilot in Atlanta flying with Captain Slim Thomas. For some reason, which I don't remember, Slim started talking about John. He is the most level-headed man you will ever see, Slim said. He concluded with a figure of speech. John Halliburton has more horse sense than most horses, he said. In due time, I learned that John also has more horse sense than most people. I never knew a more clearer-thinking man, nor one with sounder judgment. He could instantly size up a problem, go straight to the essentials, articulate his conclusion in clear, understandable terms, and make it look easy. Equal to his judgment, in my opinion, was his stability. I never knew him to be off balance. I cannot visualize him losing his cool. Surely, he must have been perturbed at times, but I can't believe he would ever lose his equilibrium. He always kept everything in perspective. You just couldn't get mad at John Halliburton because he never did anything to get you mad. Perhaps his decisions on occasion might frustrate some of the Eastern Union leaders or non-contract employees, but never generated anger among them because he was always fair. 
As we tell his story here tonight, it'll become crystal clear how his life touched many thousands of people, how he gave of himself to his company, to its employees, and to his community. He once said that he felt the community and the company had given so much to him that he always felt an obligation to return to his company and his community. John was born in Brownsville, Tennessee, on May 21, 1906. When he was about four years old, 1910, his father decreased his business interests and moved his family from Brownsville to his farm. It was on this farm and in the country that John developed a great love for the outdoors. Hunting, fishing, the study of wildlife increased as the years went by. It did, in fact, become his chief hobby. He was given his first gun when he was six years old. His dad went to great lengths to foster this love of the outdoors, and he was never too busy to take John on a hunting or camping trip in the great forest along the Mississippi River, some 30 miles from their home. These great times with his dad cemented in his heart love for the outdoors, and it remained with him throughout his life. As the childhood years faded away and the teen years arrived, he developed many other interests and ambitions. One was going to West Point. There are many procedures to carry out in the quest for an appointment to West Point, all of which he did in proper time, including the formal application. Then he waited and waited and waited, but nothing happened. Finally, he made an inquiry as to why he had heard nothing, not even a rejection. Investigation disclosed that he could not they could not find a trace of his application until the secretary of that... Thank you very, very much. You guys are great. Thank you. Until the secretary that customarily handled the paperwork found it where it had fallen behind her, just gathering dust. They instructed him to proceed by going to an army base for a physical and a host of other requirements. The base he reported to was a very old one which was about to be closed. The doctor was old. His book of requirements was something out of the archives. In short, it became a kind of comedy of errors. Eventually, John lost interest as he became engrossed in other challenges. But this story of his brief encounter with trying to go to West Point is interesting because it illustrates how one small, single, little mishap, or perhaps a cross-up in a person's life, can change his or her direction, permanently altering what their life would have been. Who knows whether John might have become an Army general who participated in World War II. No one will ever know, of course, but all of us who knew him at Eastern and his family, who wouldn't have been glad that we got him instead of the Army? Mike? home. He had model airplanes hanging from the ceiling, airplanes that he had built himself. This was long before model airplane kits were available. Throughout his prep school years, he hung around the local airport in his spare time talking with pilots. Although he had been bitten by the bug to fly, he had even stronger, uh, a stronger desire to someday build airplanes. It was in this frame of, frame of mind that he had during his high school years although he never attended a public high school. His parents wanted the best 
for him, arranging him to attend the Memphis University School at uh, a college uh, preparatory school. After his graduation from there, he enrolled in the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And always a serious student, he endowed a strong desire to be well-educated. Throughout his life, he was an avid reader, assuming book after book. This love for the books developed when, as a boy, there was no TV, no radio, and no movies to watch. To escape occasional boredom, he got lost in his books. At the university, he became acquainted with a flight instructor, a Mr. Frank Andre, who taught him to fly. He soloed a jenny off the island in, river, island, uh, island in the river of ne- near Knoxville. Interestingly, his flight instructor was to precede him in employment with Pitcairn Aviation, the predecessor company to Eastern Air Transport. Frank Andre was hired by Pitcairn Aviation on May 5, 1929, and in a 1942 seniority list shows him as number 10 on that list, as Captain Halliburton was on number 47 on that list. Well, John graduated from the university in 1927 with a Bachelor of Science degree in aeronautical engineering. He had spent five years in school at the university after a change of major from civil engineering to aeronautical engineering. He also paved paid his way through college by working in a nearby Alcoa plant and left college for a year to sail as a ship's engineer on a lumber freighter that sailed from the Canadian Northwest Points to those of Eastern Canada. Before leaving the university, he pledged the Sigma Chi fraternity and was accepted into the Honor Society. His decision to go to work for Eastern Air Transport is another example of how fate can sometimes enter a person's life. He happened to be in Atlanta one day knowing his flight instructor, Frank Andre, was flying an eastern flight, so he made it a point to be at the airport waiting for him. As he waited by the fence, another man joined him, and when Andre deplaned, he saw the two men standing together and quickly introduced them. The stranger was Carl H. Dolan, Eastern Air Transport's Vice President of Operations. Captain Andre excused himself to go inside and fill out his end-of-the-trip report, and while he was gone, the conversation no doubt went something like this. Well, Frank said you're also a pilot, Mr. Dolan began. Yes, John replied. He was my instructor when I was at the University of Tennessee. That's interesting, Dolan stated. What did you study there? I started in civil engineering but changed my major and graduated in aeronautical engineering, John informed him. Have you done much flying, Dolan inquired. Well, I worked for Ford Motor Company's airplane division and did some flying while there. I'm presently flying for Curtis Flying Service, John answered. How much time do you have now, Dolan continued. Oh, about 1,700 hours, John replied. You certainly have a good background in aviation, Dolan complimented him. It sounds like uh, the airplane business might be for you. The conversation continued along those lines, and Mr. Dolan learned that John also had other qualifications, including certification in Great Circle Celestial Navigation, working toward his A&E mechanic license, and more. Finally, he offered John a job as an engineer with Eastern, which was quickly accepted, starting as an assistant to Dolan. Apparently, by now, he had made the decision 
that the flying end of aviation offered the best future for him. This chance meeting of Mr. Dole is, a, is another example of how what looks like an ins insignificant event can become a turning point in a person's life. Carrie? Okay. Only 25 years old when he joined Eastern, it was only natural John would develop some romantic interests, which happened in the offices where he worked. Mary Redding, 23 years old, did secretarial work for all the executives, including John. He was attracted to her and began courting her. She dated him, but somehow just wasn't too enamored with him. She is reported to have said she thought he was too formal, but he persisted and her affections for him grew. An amazing sidelight to their romance was that Dolan one day gave a lot of personal folders to John to file away. John fingered through them, finding one marked, Mary Emmy Redding. Naturally, he opened and read it where he found this comment. She is an excellent secretary, but she has one fault. She tends to be a clock watcher. Mary Redding was a South Carolina girl born in Fountain Inn, South Carolina in 1908. July 6, 1933, became an important day to John. It became his seniority day as an Eastern pilot. He reportedly went to the pilot list because of the rumors of a big management shakeup expected under the arrival of Eddie Rickenbacker, who was coming over from General Motors to take over the management of Eastern. John apparently knew the pilot job would insulate him from such a shakeup. Becoming the pilot required him to move his base to Newark, but leaving Atlanta did not cool the romance between Mary and John. As a pilot, he was in Atlanta often enough to keep the courtship going. While a line pilot in 1934, a big personal event took place in John's life. Becoming a pilot had taken him away from Atlanta to Newark and then Miami. All the while, he was still trying to keep his romance alive with Mary Redding, who was still in Atlanta. It was September 1st, 1934. They both realized they wanted their future together. In Atlanta on a trip, he said to her, I'm flying a trip down to Jacksonville. Why don't you get on the plane and go with me? When we get to Jacksonville, let's get married. Mary did not hesitate. Yeah. Go with him, she did, and they tied the knot. The wedding took place on September 2nd, 1934, in the home of a mutual friend of both of them. While living in Atlanta, Mary and John decided it was time to start a family. John and Mary's firstborn, John, was born June 16, 1939. A second child, Anne, was born about 1942, but sadly only lived for three months, which deeply grieved Mary for many years to come. Aside from this misfortune, these early years for John and Mary certainly seemed to be the green years, although many wonderful years were yet to come. John's promotion to Director of Flight Training, Military Transport Division, was on September 1, 1942, less than a year after Pearl Harbor. He tackled the job with dedication. As Director of Flight Training, his responsibility was directing the training of almost 100 pilots per month, as well as flight mechanics and flight navigators for the Army, Corps, Army Air Corps. George? Although there were some, pilots agree some pilot agreements with management back in the 1930s, no official contract came into being until 1941. The Eastern pilots continually strived to get a written contract, but there was almost cement-like resistance from Captain Eddie. A negotiating committee made up of Vern Peterson, Frank Kern, Fer Furman Stone, Bob Young, and John Halliburton 
were trying hard to get one signed, and all they were attempting to get in writing was what they already had in actual practice, but wanted it all to be in contract to be contractually protected. When Captain Eddie came over to Eastern from General Motors, he brought Charles France with him to be operations manager. General Motors had a controlling interest in both Eastern and Western Airlines at the time, and France brought over four Western pilots to Eastern and put them on the Eastern pilot seniority list. This act, the way it was done, caused these four pilots to be promoted before the Eastern pilots on the seniority list. So a meeting with Captain Eddie was arranged, the first such meeting with him to discuss this inequity. An Alpha ad hoc committee was there along with some other Eastern pilots. The ad hoc committee was made up of R.C. Young, E.V. Chandler, A.H. Comer, John Halliburton, L.R. McGee, C.C. Potts, R.K. Smith, and W.S. Dawson. The date was February 25, 1935, and a big discussion followed regarding the unfairness of these four Western pilots jumping ahead of the Eastern pilots. It was a roundtable discussion when Captain Eddie finally stood up and read them the riot act. He said, now you guys get this straight. What we've done, what we've been doing is the way it's going to be, period. These two companies are one company as far as General Motors is concerned. So what we've done is going to remain that way. Captain Eddie ranted and raved, continuing his tirade for a while until he turned to each pilot present and asked if they had anything to say. Bob Young said he hoped the day would come when we, we could count on the seniority list or the seniority system for promotions so that the young pilots coming up could depend on getting their fair turn. When Captain Eddie got to Halliburton, everyone present was astonished what strong language he used, telling Captain Eddie that the company was not recognizing the rights of its own pilots. Without profanity, which he never used, but nonetheless firm, he let Captain Eddie know that he didn't agree with or respect the stand that the old man, as Captain Eddie was known, was taking. The other pilots present were quaking in their boots, scared as hell that Halliburton was speaking too strongly. Don? Not long after the meeting, Beverly Griffiths was talking to Bob Young and confirmed in him, or confided in him. He said after that meeting, uh, the old man said, quote, I'm going to have to get rid of that guy, Halliburton, unquote. However, as time went by, Captain Eddie's wisdom won out. He realized that in John Halliburton, he had a man who had courage of his convictions, had strength of character with obvious qualities of leadership. He decided he would rather have Halliburton on his side instead of against him. Incidentally, to the Alpha history, when the first Alpha contract was signed for Eastern pilots, John Halliburton's signature was one of the signatures on it. Tragically, on September 9, 1966, Captain John's wife of 32 years, Mary, was killed instantly in an automobile accident only a few blocks from their home in Coral Gables. Friends say she was always fighting, quote, the Battle of the Bulge, quote, and had just gotten back from several weeks of determined effort. She had taken off 30 pounds 
and was on her way to the dressmaker to have some clothes altered to fit her slimmer size when the accident occurred. It was only one week following their 32nd wedding anniversary. Floyd Hall, president of Eastern Airlines at the time, made available to John and his family a DC-9 to fly Mary to Brownsville, Tennessee for her burial. The Eastern crew on that flight also donated their time for the flight. That sounds like what Eastern people would do. Sid Shannon asked Dolores Kramerer to become his secretary for his Miami office as he worked from both New York and Miami. She accepted staying with him until his retirement in 1959. John Halliburton's office had been across the hall from Shannon's. At his retirement, Dolores became secretary to Captain John, the new vice president of operations. In her entire career, Dolores had always been secretary to top executives. Working for John Halliburton, it was only natural over time she would become a friend of his family. She had, for example, then watching son David grow up, becoming a good friend of his. There were many occasions when she spent time with the family, and now and then for dinner, and many times playing cards with Mary. There were, there were occasions when Mary's death, John escorted different women to various functions. However, in time, his decision was to seek Dolores' hand in marriage. In, the, in addition to secretary, she had become his closest friend, his confidant in business matters, and a friend of the family. She accepted, and they were married on April 12, 1968. They had their honeymoon in East Africa, where they visited Captain Rick and Mary Rivenbeck. Rick was the operating director of East African Airways. In 1971, after more than 40 years of service, John retired at the age of 65, but he was far from losing interest in Eastern Airlines or the pilots he had worked with. In October 1971, Captains E.M. Taylor and L.C. Transu were planning the Eastern Pilots Retirement Association, and Captain John was among those who attended that meeting. Later at the renamed Retired Eastern Pilots Association, or now known as REPA, he frequently took part in convention activities. In 1978, he was a master of ceremonies at the Eastern Alpha Retirement Center in Miami. He enjoyed the fellowship with his pilot friends, and John attended most of the Reaper conventions. Article 14 of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association bylaws is the Hall of Fame award, and it reads, The Retired Eastern Pilots Association, Inc., recognizes that among our regular members are individuals who, by reason of their personal standards, character, and their professional, civic, and other achievements, have won the admiration and respect of their fellow pilots and associates. They desire to acknowledge such individuals and confer upon them the REPA Hall of Fame Award. The selection of such individuals shall be the responsibility of the executive board in the consultation with others, and the award shall be made 
at the next annual convention following such selection. It is the intent of this article that, to the extent possible, this award be made during the lifetime of the individual selected. Notice in the life sentence article, it is the intent of this article that, to the extent possible, this award be made during the lifetime of the individual selected. The following effort was made to give Reapers first the first number one Hall of Fame award to Captain John Halliburton. During 1987, John was beginning to have some health problems, which doctors diagnosed as a health heart problem. With excellent attention, he was getting along well and looking forward to attending the Reaper Convention in Orlando in October. At the last minute, however, he was not able to make it. Then in early 1988, a new problem was diagnosed. He had developed a cancer. When it became evident that he would not be at the convention, Reaper President Gil Gurin proposed a special telephone hookup to John's hospital room in Kerrville, Texas. The idea was technically feasible, but it had to be dropped when John's condition worsened. The Jacksonville Convention was September the 29th and 30th and October the 1st at the banquet. On Saturday night, Captain Rick Rivenbark, Secretary of Reaper and longtime friend of John Halliburton, received the plaque on John's behalf. Rick and all who took part in creating the award knew, quote, we were running out of time. Rick was asked to accept the award and deliver it to him. Rick went to Kerrville on Tuesday, October the 4th and visited with John and Dolores at the hospital that afternoon. John, when he was awake, was alert and understood everything that was said. Captain Rivenback explained the significance of the award and told him it was a unanimous will of all at the convention that he be the recipient of this first such award, number one award. While he had difficulty talking, he did express his appreciation for the award, award and asked that Rick convey his thanks and appreciation to the executive board of REAP and the members as for naming him as the first person so honored into the Reaper Hall of Fame. Captain Rivenback visited with John again the following morning on Wednesday, then he departed for Miami. Captain Halliburton died Friday afternoon. The first Hall of Fame award read, in recognition of his outstanding achievements, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association is proud to honor Captain J.H. John Halliburton with the Reaper Hall of Fame, October the 1st, 1988. Captain Rivenbark said the plaque was with John in his hospital room when he died at 5 p.m. on Friday, October the 7th, 1988. On October the 18th, 1988, at the memorial service in Miami, his elder son, John, spoke, quote, My father was a peacemaker. He was a peacemaker and a healer. Anytime relationships between people are improved, that is the work of a peacemaker and a healer, and that was Dad's specialty. He was a peacemaker in his home. He set a good example of dignity and integrity for his two sons. We grew up in a secure, loving environment. The prayer of St. Francis ends with the statement, for it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. My faith teaches the eternal life is a quality of life which begins when we acknowledge and accept Jesus Christ, Savior, and Lord, and seek to lead our lives according to his will. My dad experienced eternal life 
a long time ago. That God who created him and God who he loved and served called him home on October the 7th, 1988 at 5 p.m. And at that instant, my father, in a literal sense, was born to eternal life. Captain, we will miss you. Ladies and gentlemen, speaking to the group, and fellow pilots, I am here before you honoring Captain John H. Halliburton as a member of this fine group of airmen, of which I and your producer, Captain Neil Holland, who was there, have been so honored. Captain John Halliburton is at the head of that list. Neil? Thank you, Jim. Thank you, host. Wonderful tribute that uh, you have just heard of Captain John Halliburton. The meaning of the Eastern Airline Radio Show's Hall of Fame is the Radio Show's Hall of Fame tribute is given to honorable and noteworthy Eastern members who have been outstanding in their achievements and their dedication to Eastern Airlines. The purpose is to honor those that dedicate their lives to keep the legacy of Eastern Airlines in the hearts and minds of the public and future generations. We want to preserve and memorialize the outstanding accomplishments of each member we induct into our Eastern Airlines radio show, Hall of Fame. Certainly, Captain John H. Halliburton deserves a place in this Hall of Fame. Thank you. 
underfoot by the heart You may know it If you may know it While the sand Would become the stone Which begat the spark Turned to living bone Holy, holy into the Eastern Radio Show Hall of Fame. First-class inductees, posthumously, Edward V. Rickenbacker, Floyd D. Hall, Dick Merrill. Second-class inductees, posthumously, Harold Pickern. Third-class inductees, Captain Robert M. Wilbur, Jr., and Mr. Vito Borelli. Fourth-class inductees posthumously, Captain Steve Thompson. Fifth-class inductee posthumously, Eastern Executive John P. Ingle, Jr. Sixth-class inductee posthumously, which we did tonight, Eastern Captain and Executive John H. Halberton. A quote... I have often said that the lure of flying is the lure of beauty, unquote. That was by Amelia Earhart. Quote, as we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. End of quote. That was John F. Kennedy. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling birds of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things. I've wheeled and soared and swung high in the sunlit silence, hovering there. 
face the shouting winds along and flung my eager cry through footless halls of I'm especially grateful for my time with Eastern Airlines for producing men like John Halpern. That's our show tonight. Thank you so much for listening in. And host, thank you for contributing to this show in honor of Captain John H. Halliburton and to our sixth class the Eastern Airlines Radio Show Hall of Fame. We'll see you next Monday. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Good show, Neil. Thank you, Neil. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Just a Thank great you, honor. Good night. Good show. Good show. Good night, Good night everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.